0: So I need fewer patients coming to A&E, more opportunities to improve my skills, another 12 hours in each day, world peace, and a shiny new toy. Critical Care Practitioner
1: Podcast number 21. Another episode of Critical Care Practitioner Podcast. My name is Jesse Spur, and this is the podcast to inform, debate, and discuss all things critical care wherever in your hospital that might be. Get ready. Jesse Spurr. I'm a nurse educator um, in the medical emergency response field, background clinically in um, critical care, ICU, cardiothoracic ICU, and a little bit of dabbling in oncology, hematology And my as a newly minted RN. Why am I here today? Why are you hearing my voice? Um, a bit of a flipped uh, Christmas episode approach. Um, kindly at the invitation of Jonathan to Flip the tables and um, take the reins of his very well-established um, podcast, one I'm an avid listener to, and uh, look at a year year in a review and uh, interrogate the man behind the Critical Care Practitioner podcast and website and all the emerging associated activities. For me, I'd really like to get to know essentially some of the stuff that really motivates you because the whole premise of all this free, open access, medical education, critical care practitioner um, uprising, it takes a hell of a lot of time and effort. So what motivates you to put in all these extra hours to divert away from other things?
0: Hi Jesse, that's a really interesting question and it's actually one I was thinking about a couple of days ago and I was wondering what the answer to that one might be, what motivates me? I think my motivation levels have changed quite dramatically over the last couple of years and it's kind of um, almost a circular process, it's the chicken and the egg really is, Am I motivated by social me- media or is my motivation why I take part in social media? And I think it's a combination of the two really I've been um, putting together a presentation for a meeting, hopefully in March, and it's going to revolve around social media. And one of the reasons um, I work so hard is because of the networking and interactions that I can get through the social media sphere, really. One of the things I discovered, I probably, if I go back a couple of years, I started using Twitter. Um, I discovered it about two years ago, um, January time, Um, and I started using Twitter and I very quickly realized how easy it is to network with people from around the world. Um, um, You know, our interaction is an example of that and the way that um, it very quickly flattens the hierarchies as well. One of the frustrations I had prior to that was that actually keeping up to date and interacting with the movers and shakers in the critical care world wasn't that easy unless you were going to the conferences, and I'll come to conferences in a minute because that's another matter entirely, but unless you're going to things like conferences, you're not actually able to interact with people, but I quickly discovered through Twitter that that is something that you can do very quickly, and one of the things that um, I love about Twitter is the way it flattens the hierarchy so well, you know, I can be chatting to consultants, I can be chatting to healthcare assistants, student nurses, and we're all chatting to each other as if we're equal. Um, and, and indeed, that's the way it should be, um, because we've all got opinions to express.
1: Yeah, it's a really <laughs> so, interesting concept because I, I suppose it plays a lot to the philosophy rather than the platform of social media. The, it's interesting you sort of touched on the the conference aspect. I've certainly certainly noticed as there's been a pervasive influence of social media into the movements around and, and within conferences that the hierarchy at the conferences has flattened somewhat. Um, maybe it's a selection bias for the types of conferences I've been attending and choosing to attend, but my prior experiences had not been that um, some of those more eminent critical care clinicians were overly approachable in a conference context. It was always the big boys table and then um, then the rest of us mere delegates just Uh, skimming around the fringes trying to find someone to
0: talk to in our tea breaks and I think that's just a complete aside here I think that's one of the reasons why smack works so well I know you've been feeling I get from smack is that there are there really is no them and us at all it's us us and us you know it's um, the presentations are done in a very not light-hearted but um, easy to digest format One of the big problems I have with medical conferences, and and interestingly enough, I was listening to an audio book called Talk Like Ted. I don't know if you've ever read it, Um, but it's a very interesting book. And one of the things that he said towards the end is that some of the stuffiest conferences renowned are the medical conferences, and indeed they are. Um, And the conference I went to last year is just somebody standing behind a a lectern with slide after slide after slide of heavy text-based stuff. And SMAC is completely different from that. And I think. Smack is dominated by people who are very heavily involved in social media. You know, there's a long list of people on Twitter. There's a long list of people on Google Plus who are all involved in Smack. And I think the willingness to take part in social media is reflected in the fact that these people are also extremely approachable when it comes to conferences like Smack. And I'm hoping it's going to change. But my big problem with conferences is the costs incurred. I've never organized a conference. Um, I don't know whether some of these costs are actually realistic as to what you actually, uh, it costs you to run it. But I do get a little bit cross sometimes when For example, I was asked to attend a one-day conference, a one-day conference, and I was being asked for 500 pounds to do so. And I just – it's one of my big bugbears. But anyway, let's get back to the point. What motivates me – sorry, I I do tend to digress a little bit. What motivates me is the desire to – I've always said that as I educate myself, I want to educate others as well because I don't see the point in me – learning things which I can then help other people learn as well so that's my biggest motivation on as far as my work out there in the social media world goes at the moment and what made it, motivates me at work is just a desire to advance the advanced practice roles um, I think there's a big future for nurses with ambition and I think one of the things I can do to help with my experience is to try and promote the role develop the role and work with those people and there are a lot of them over here in this country now who are going to make big changes so that's really what motivates me as far as that's concerned and that's why I I work some of the hours that I do and I enjoy it all none of it's a chore it's all good fun Hello, my name's David Barton Swansea and I chatted with Jonathan on his podcast early this year, and I'm just leaving a message to say I wish him and his audience a a very merry Christmas and a very happy New Year.
1: I think that's the key, isn't it? You tend to find time that otherwise wouldn't exist if it was uh, something that you were begrudgingly attending to rather than doing out of passion.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and you know. One of the fortunate things I have is a, a very supportive family. You know, my wife gives me all this time. Um, I, I'll sit in the study till ten, eleven o'clock at night, and we'll perhaps meet up briefly before we go to bed sometimes. But you know, uh, the the key to that as well. And I was discussing this with a colleague the other day. The key to that is that when you do have downtime, that the computer gets turned off, the phone gets put away, and you make sure it's quality time. So, uh, but that's that's really why one of the reasons I can move forward so well and I can have discussions like this with you at six thirty in the morning you know and it's it's all good fun I love it I love my working life at the moment it's just fantastic oh that's
1: brilliant that's really brilliant so I suppose that taking a little bit of a step back from the social media and into the the pre-social media and um, and pre-website phase what what was it about critical care that drew you in
0: Oh, goodness. Uh, I love critical care, always have done. Um, if I'm perfectly honest with you, I my biggest buzz is from getting the patient who's as sick as they could possibly be, that is very close to intubation, indeed usually ends up being intubated, that needs the inotropes. I kind of fell into critical care. I went and worked out in Saudi Arabia uh, for six months came home from there on vacation and managed to get my passport and visa stolen and never went back to Saudi Arabia and kind of didn't know what to do. Uh, And a colleague of mine said, well, there's a vacancy in our critical care department. Do you want to go there? And I did. And I've never looked back. And that's 18 years ago now. So I just love looking after the sick patient. I love being able to be involved in the very acute phases. I'd be perfectly honest and say I'm not a lover of the more chronically um, unwell ITU patients, so the weaning patient, it's it's not what does it for me. But I also love the knowledge that working in critical care gives you. And I don't know what it's like in Australia now, Jesse, but the nurses on the wards just seem to be chronically understaffed and chronically overworked. Um, with excessive amounts of paperwork, lots and lots of patients coming in. You know, whole the whole dynamic has changed, certainly in my working career, which is twenty five years long now. When I worked on the wards, you had time to admit patients, discharge patients, look after patients and do a bit of hand holding. Now the nurses are lucky if they get a break, they're rushing around like idiots. I used to feel a little bit guilty as a critical care outreach nurse when I worked in that role, going onto the wards and telling them I had to do half hourly observations on a patient that was sick when it was all they could do to, you know, do the drug ground, do the paperwork. And that's another reason why, really, I, I love critical care, because there's, those pressures are completely different. You do still have one-to-one nurse-to-patient ratio in the high-dependency unit is one-to-two patient ratio. And that allows the nurses to deliver the care in a structured, formatted way, And to care. So I I couldn't go back to the wards and I do do feel sorry for the ward nurses um, and I get the feeling that perhaps it's the same in Australia now as well.
1: Definitely appears to be. Um, One of the unfortunate byproducts that seems to have crept in because of that is that education um, has become somewhat viewed as a punitive measure that education gets delivered as a stick once something's done wrong. So we're going to educate you to do it properly next time rather than motivating and enthusing and playing to people's sense of desire to learn I, obviously there's a balance to that but I, I, I think it's one of the big challenges is if there's no provision of that sort of educational support in work time it makes it much harder to then switch on that switch and just have this passion and desire to learn in your own time in an asynchronous fashion and that's possibly one of the things in um, critical care that Constantly, every day, you see something that reminds you of how little you actually know about what you're doing. That, for me, is a very powerful motivator to go and learn more and more and more um, and even then get to that tipping point of prospectively learning about stuff that I may need to know one day
0: yeah absolutely and and one of the things that I've become very aware of over the last year or so is that I think as the health service I don't know what it's uh, again uh, let's compare it to to your experience but certainly in nursing it's been very true whilst I've been nursing that uh, in order to progress in nursing experience was the most essential factor in any interview situation so they if you applied for a job, let's say as a junior sister, you had to have, I don't know, the criteria would say something like you've got to have two years at this level and three years at that level. And, and, and it bothers me ever so slightly because there are some fantastic nurses out there with lots of ambition, desire. And skills that, but because they haven't had the two years at this grade and the three years at that grade, they're not entitled to apply for the position. And as a consequence, we make them work x number of years at certain grades without necessarily being able to achieve or impact on some of the things that they should be able to. And I'm trying to push at this end to identify those kinds of nurses and we've been using the phrase gifted and talented and I've got my own issues with that phrase but let's use that for now we've been using the phrase gifted and talented let's identify them in an early stage even if they're sometimes they're even student nurses let's identify them let's have a pool of resources for them and let's start investing in them early and get them when they're still in their 20s rather than like old crocs like me or in their mid to late 40s who have, yes, got lots of experience but uh, a dwindling number of years to make the impact that they would like to. Let's get them nice and early and let's put them in the role and let's... Somebody said the phrase and I'm sure it's a bit trite but somebody said the phrase you know, I want I want to uh, light the fire not fill the pail. Hi, my name is Gavin Denton. I'm a critical care practitioner in the Birmingham area. Myself and Jonathan chatted on the podcast episode 19. Just calling to wish him and his listeners a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And that's my mantra really at the moment. When I see nurses like that, there's a a girl called Claire Flatt who I interviewed back in podcast number five or six, I think it was she is um, at the time she was a very new qualified staff nurse and one of the things I remarked upon when I interviewed her is, is that she, she said the word passion at least seven or eight times within the first sentence that she uttered and that to me is what we should be hunting for now we shouldn't be hunting anymore for the nurse managers they're important of course they are but my desire now is to is to find Not even the nurse leaders, but the people who can go out and inspire others to achieve some of the fabulous things that they can do. Um, and that's that's another reason I trawl Twitter like I do. I've just had a discussion with another nurse called Claire Johnston, um, who is also reasonably newly qualified. And she's quite active on Twitter as well. And she's ambitious and she wants to achieve things. You know, she she lives in uh, Ipswich, I think she said, and she was asking where the good master's courses are in the country and I said well there's a very good one in Warwick which is just down the road from me and she's prepared to move to do that you know and I just think well that just shows the level of ambition and they're the kind of people that I'm trying to find.
1: It does and if we getting to those people before they become enculturated by an old old system of doing things in an old business so that you don't have to deprogram Once they finally do progress to the point where it's traditionally acceptable to do postgraduate studies and traditionally acceptable to take on a portfolio or more of a management type function or a leadership function. It's never been something that sat with me well at all as a um, longevity based promotion model.
0: No, I agree, and again, we have an example of a colleague at work um, who shall remain nameless, but a colleague at work who's so vastly competent in his role um, as a a clinical practitioner in the accident emergency department, but um, is not necessarily so so able to move forward with the master's level, degree level of education. But he's doing it, kicking and screaming, but in order for him to be defined as competent, um, he has to achieve this master's level of education, and I wonder whether we are putting. On, and I'm sure, I don't know when, whether we are. I'm sure we are putting a lot, putting off a lot, of talent because we're saying to them, "You have to have this master's level of competence." I do understand the reasons for it, and I, I can see that there are great benefits to it, and it is important. But I just wonder whether we need to try and find another way for people like that to achieve the competence without necessarily having to write essay after essay after essay to prove their competence Hello, my name is Ken Spearpoint and I chatted with Jonathan on episode 5 of his podcast, I wish him and all his audience the very best for Christmas and
1: for 2015. One of the big issues that I sort of see in nursing in Australia is there's a lack of a defined career pathway. You can end up in a a terminating position that you were aspiring to, but then all of a sudden there's just nowhere further to go unless you're wanting to go into executive or, which, which is a little hard to maintain that ambition. So I guess redirecting to the question, from a critical care practitioner or an emergency department practitioner point of view, where's next? What What's the ambition professionally
0: that lies beyond that for you? That's always hard to answer that. It's like the question at the interview, where do you see yourself in five years, you know? And yeah. my answer at interview has always been, I haven't got a clue. My attitude has always been, be in the right place, at the right time, with the right qualifications, and doors will open. And as that door opens and you step through it, there'll be a row of other doors to go through as well. There'll be more choices. When you when you say executive, do you mean, is that a management position you're talking yeah, about?
1: Yeah, so it's senior, senior management level.
0: Yeah, never, i never... I did try, I dabbled briefly with the management position, and I hated it, and I was no good at it as a consequence. Um, so I quickly learned that m- clinical input for me was important. And there was probably five, six years ago, there was only two alternatives. You were either a manager or you were an educator. And unfortunately, when you get to a certain level in a a clinical input uh, in this country, the education role becomes a non-sustainable one as well because they don't get paid as much as I do. So um, people say, why don't you go off and be a, a lecturer in a university? And the quick answer is because it's not something I can maintain from an income point of view. The... Options have changed quite dramatically, and I think we'll continue to do so over here. And that's being led possibly by many different things. But certainly some of the main reasons that it's changing over here is because of um, something called the European Working Time Directive. We are all a big member of this lovely European family, although I suspect as a country we won't be there for much longer. But that's another story. And that just means that the junior doctor's hours have dramatically reduced. The impact of that is that they're training for shorter periods of time, moving through departments for perhaps three to four months at a time, rather than the the longer duration they used to when I was a bit younger. And that means that um, they're thinner on the ground, and that's why the practitioner role has developed over here. The plans, or, or certainly the fu- let's let's say the future. If the future was down to me, I would see that the nurse practitioner doesn't have this glass ceiling above their head anymore that they are already there are a practitioner and autonomous in their own right but i think what will happen is that they will become qualified to a consultant level um, and they will be taking caseloads of patients by themselves responsible for them from beginning to end like somebody said to me on twitter the other day it it It's not about the letters you've got after your name as to what type of patients you can treat. It's about the skills that you have and nurses are becoming much more active now in achieving a lot of the skills they need for looking after the patients and achieving those skill sets in order to make it so. So nurses are going to become... A much bigger part in diagnosing developing treatment plans, seeing those treatment seeing those treatment plans through managing a caseload of patients and just becoming more responsible from a much more senior point of view and as a consequence, the career ladder will not stop yeah. at the level it does now, and I think Australia will follow that way. I think America are already there, although America's a totally different matter because of the way that their health system is funded. But I think uh, America, uh, sorry, Australia, uh, New Zealand, South Africa will also move that way. Ultimately, I do see that um, nursing is going to change massively. And I think if people are in the right spot, they can have a big impact on that change as well. So you're Where not necessarily I'm
1: gonna, looking to a role that necessarily exists presently, but creating the movement towards No, I'm towards trying, the trying
0: new, to plow my own furrow, hopefully. The new uh, world I, order. Uh, Absolutely. I'm very lucky to work with a, a chap called uh, Gary Swan, yeah. who I interviewed uh, two or three podcasts ago. Yeah. Now, he's, he's a very forward-thinking individual. I haven't quite got his mindset yet, but he doesn't see any barriers at all. He's the one who led the process at the current trust I work at, um, moving the um, advanced clinical practitioners forward. And we call them clinical because there are physios involved as well. Yeah as nurses and I think there, there are going to be other specialties getting involved. He led the process, he came from Derby uh, about 10 or 11 years ago and has very much developed the way we work. Uh, there's lots of interest from other trusts about the way that we work and it's going to change in a big way if we have our way and Gary really is, he's the one you should really talk to if you want to know how nursing is going to change and the developments that are going to occur. Um, and I'm I'm lucky to work with him because things will change in his hands and I'm just kind of walking behind him in his footsteps yeah. and trying to emulate him as well.
1: I suppose it brings up two points that I've uh, we've segued nicely into it, two points that I'm really curious about, about these advanced um, practitioner roles, particularly, I guess, in critical care because of the scope for Fairly significant ego um, amongst our uh, amongst some of our colleagues, um, not just not just confined to medicine, but uh, other other professions as well. What first question is in general about advanced practice nursing roles? At what point do you think we stop becoming a nurse? Stop being a nurse? When do, what? What's inherently nursing um, an advanced practice nurse role rather than becoming a different profession?
0: Uh, that's a very good question. And I think perhaps I'll change the question slightly. I don't think we ever stop being a nurse. I think what we do is we bring our nursing skills to a different role. I've got to tread carefully here because I don't ever want to infer that the medics are less empathetic than nurses because they're not. But I think nurses are per se, have a different approach when interacting with a patient than perhaps some of the medics do. And one of the things that um, I can do as a nurse bringing into an advanced practice role is to bring some of those skills in as well. So, you know, the nursing care has never left me. I do still occasionally get involved with it. Um, And I would like to think that um, rather than it being an advanced practice role and I've left all the nursing behind, that actually the nursing is very, very much a part of the advanced practice and it makes me a better advanced practitioner as a consequence. So, for example, in the critical care role. I don't know what it's like in Australia, but I would imagine it's exactly the same. I don't let doctors near machinery in critical care because, quite frankly, they don't know what they're doing with it. Um, you know, you stick up a you stick up a fluid bolus and you let a, a doctor near the machine and generally they look round at you very quickly and say, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, so I can, unlike many of my medical colleagues, I can put a patient on the ventilator, I can set it up properly, I can get the fluids running. Um, I can do all of those things that I used to be able to do as a nurse as well as all the medical things as well. So um, I certainly can bring many more skills to the role um, that my medical colleagues don't have because they haven't had that kind of training. Um, So I think, do I stop being a nurse? No, I don't think I ever stop being a nurse And it's like, uh, to quote Gary, one of the most important things, one of the most, sorry, not one of, the most important quality of any of the advanced practitioners is the ability to care. If they can't care, then they shouldn't be in the role to start with. And the ability to care is what leads anything that I do with my patients. So the desire to help them and to to move their care forward in whatever way, shape or form that takes. The, The nursing aspect of it is a strength of the advanced practitioner role it's not something just to put to one side and say well I'm not a nurse anymore I think it's important that you don't do that and that you remember some of your roots
1: yeah it's it's a interesting philosophical definition of retaining the professional aspects and it's a it's a hard one because I think the modern nurse the the profession of modern nursing doesn't necessarily have the same philosophical core anymore it's it's quite a broad professional base attributes of care are always a very hard thing to stipulate and attach to a profession i think because it's it's an individual thing and as you said empathy is an individual thing and um i've certainly worked with a lot of nurses that aren't inherently empathetic and and medical colleagues alike so no really interesting um it's, it, I suppose context wise for me, uh, one of the things I've had this conversation with a number of people before about at what point do, uh, does a role become not a nursing role and become something different or, or a nursing profession and become something different. There's a, been a recent introduction and again it's because of um, workload and, and workflow requirements and patient movement requirements to the introduction of nurse endoscopists in Australia. So that's an interesting one for me as well because it's it's actually structured to being an advanced practice level nursing role, when there's a large element of it that it that to me is a tech role or a tech a, a, a proceduralist technical role.
0: Hey there, folks. My name's Robin Davis. I'm a resuscitation officer, Birmingham in the UK, and I chatted with Jonathan on podcast number three. I'm wishing him and all his audience a Merry Christmas and a very happy new year. I can see your argument that, you know, perhaps scoping people um, day in, day out is not necessarily a, a nursing role as such. I guess the answer to that is not knowing the role particularly in depth is Let's go out and find a nurse endoscopist to speak to and we can talk to them about it and see how they justify or how they uh, keep up their nursing aspect because I'm sure to them it's probably just as important that they don't leave their nursing background behind I would imagine that if you ask 95% of nurses the reason that they came into nursing is because they want to care for people Um, and surely as a nurse endoscopist one of the most frightening times for a patient having that kind of procedure um, it's probably still highly important that the nurse is able to empathise, sympathise, handhold etc and not lose all of those nursing skills I mean you you could say the same thing and uh, if there's any theatre nurses listening now, they're probably all screaming um, at the the headphones right at this moment, but you could say similar things about the scrub nurse, for example. You know, once the patient is anaesthetised and asleep and the scrub nurse has uh, set up the instrument trolley and then is just um, helping, assisting the surgeon in the operation, where is what's classified as the... Typical nursing skills in that role and yet we've done that for many years as well Um, and I think one of the reasons that we we do that is because it's not just necessarily the technical aspect of the job that's important it's all the stuff surrounding it as well I'm sure a nurse endoscopist would probably say I'm not just sticking cameras up or down people I'm involved in the whole process from assessing them um, to preparing them, to educating them, to looking after them post procedure, and to hopefully, if the, if it's an advanced practice role, to leading and developing the service and making sure that the team around them um, the focuses on caring for the patient and not just performing this technical procedure.
1: I must admit, I seeded uh, that question essentially to just take it out of a framework that was critical care to see to hear you articulate that that function. In a different context, so which I think it has nice parallels with the critical care practitioner model. There's, I guess, an inherent skill set, skill base being recognized that you bring as a nurse and then you're building other fundamental skills on top of that. And that, that seems to define nicely a lot of advanced practice roles or flexible extended scope of practice roles with nursing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important that we as nurses make sure that we lead the process and it's not just a medically led process. There are some departments in this country at the moment, uh, some trusts, other trusts that are trying to start the advanced clinical practitioner role in the emergency department. And they're doing it a bit half heartedly, unfortunately. And one of the reasons that it has become half hearted is I think is because the medical leads are not necessarily understanding the process, um, are not understanding the role, are not understanding the way that the role needs to develop and the future that it might hold and as a consequence we have nurses going into the role who are being told yeah for three days a week you can be the advanced clinical practitioner and the other two days of the week you can be a nurse it doesn't work like that unfortunately Uh, you know you wouldn't say that to a doctor you know you can be a registrar one week and then you're going to be the the house officer for for the rest of the week it just doesn't work like that it's one of my ambitions to make sure that we nurses i think we nurses is a very important phrase that we nurses lead the process and make sure that the role develops in the way that it should do in the way that is is the way we want it to definitely yeah
1: yeah that's excellent so the other aspect the other burning question that's kind of um I guess it was seeded by a couple of interestingly heated tweets um, that were directed to my way um, in conversation after posting the guest post around um, is, is there a critical care practitioner, nurse in, in uh, brackets, um, guest yep. post that you did for my site, Injectable Orange. Um, yeah, okay. There was one relatively pointed um, comment uh, on Twitter once that le- the link to that article was, was tweeted out that just said, I sincerely hope not. And it was from a medical, I don't know that it was particularly collegiate comment, so I don't know whether to call it a medical colleague or not. But um, th- that was a really interesting one for me that um, I guess I've thought about and, and is one of the concerns when you're going into an advanced um, practice role have you had any... Uh, at, at the risk of getting a bit hot and controversial, have you had any um, big moments where there's been some uh, brick walls that you've run into with um, with the perception that you're actually taking medical training opportunities?
0: Yes. Uh, I knew there'd be a I, short answer to that one. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I probably... I should have several bruises on my face from the number of brick walls I've actually walked into. I started... Uh, my advanced practice by um, undergoing something called a physician's assistant anesthesia role um, which basically is as it sounds uh, is a postgraduate diploma in education with Warwick uh, sorry Birmingham University here and it was a very new role in that the idea the plan was that uh, the physician's assistant anesthesia ultimately would be inducting the patient and managing the anesthetic and then uh, managing the emergence as well albeit with reasonably close consultant supervision which is the way it should be because an anaesthetic isn't a straightforward thing. It can be a very dangerous and scary thing in the wrong hands. And indeed, um, I did that probably seven or eight years ago. And indeed, at our trust now, we do have a team of five um, anaesthetic assistants, shall we call them. um, And they have got this system going now where one consultant leads two theatres Um, with an anaesthetic practitioner in each one um, leading the um, anaesthetic and the point of that is that basically when I went into this training there were a lot of initiatives who um, and one indeed directly asked me so what is the point of your role why are you here how are you going to help me and there was quite a lot of resistance to it now my approach to that is or my approach to that at the time was keep my head down keep working keep keep assisting keep helping and fully enough, some of those ob- objections did disappear when I was able to sit and watch their patient while they went and had a cup of coffee. <laughs> that's probably the first break they'd had on that list for that week, you know. Um, so some of the um, controversy d- did die down. But ultimately, I-, I would be interested to know, and I'm probably fairly going to be fairly accurate in guessing that the person who posted that comment has never worked with a practitioner before. Because they- I'd be interested...
1: Yeah, they I did uh, probe a little bit more without um without inflaming further further commentary because I didn't think it was necessarily going to go in a terribly productive um or constructive <laughs> direction. But uh, yet yeah, they remarked that they had um was someone who was in an advanced um training in anesthesia role. To be honest, I I th- I'm able to speak without really kind of um skirting around it because I don't even remember the exact individual other than I quickly glanced at their um their profile it was not someone that I followed um or had had any previous interactions with so I think it was a response to a retweet that someone had tweeted the, when I uh when I tweeted the link to the to the post um sure. so a, a, a little bit of discussion but um, some of the comments were, they don't work, they're expensive, they take away training opportunities. So I just thought it was a really interesting one because that's, I guess, a lot of the trepidation that we see from a governance model over and, and, and some of the barriers to integrating New functions of of existing professions that...
0: Yeah, the most important thing you need if you're going to develop the advanced uh, practitioner role is you need medical support. If you don't get medical support, it's not going to work. And I have been very lucky um, over the last five to seven years that I've worked with a team of doctors who have been fairly open-minded about at least trying something out not the closed mindset where, no, it doesn't work, we're not gonna do it, it's okay, let's give it a go. Yep. Certainly in my critical care practitioner role, the team of consultants that I work with there are extremely supportive and very delighted and very positive as to the difference we make in the work. They tend to get a little bit upset if somebody's off sick or the rotor isn't filled with the critical care practitioner because um, they know that the registrar isn't necessarily getting as much support as they need um, and that's how important we've become in that role. As, as far as taking away training opportunities, initially, yes, yes, they do take away training opportunities because obviously they've got to be trained as well. But when you spit them out three or four years later down the line, what then happens is that they become part of the training package for the junior doctors. The junior doctors come through and the critical care practitioner, I was only doing this a couple of days ago, I was assisting one of the um, Uh, speciality trainees to put a central line into a patient's neck. I mean, all it involved was me standing there and giving us some advice and support. But if I hadn't have been there, the registrar would have had to do that role instead. But because he didn't have to do that, he could go off and do something more medically related. And initially we take away training. Of course we do. So does any training role, but we add to that training at the end of it. And we are there to help the junior doctors learn and to work alongside them. So, I have never ever worked in a department yet where, given time, the practitioner role has been nothing but of benefit. Yeah, I'm and that's the answer. That's the answer I would give to that doctor. And if they wanted to to, to debate it um, further, I'd be interested. I presume they've had bad experiences that they've worked with practitioners in the early part of their training. Or
1: potentially they've been indoctrinated by someone who's got strong, unfounded opinions. So someone that they may respect, um, or has some eminence in their organization. It's, it, it's kind of hard to know what was behind that a little bit is one wanting to know a little bit more about your experiences in that. But also, one thing I think is pretty fair to say, um, that I've garnered from listening to your podcast, reading your, reading your posts on your site is you're unapologetically ambitious and, that balanced with somewhat dwindling perception that, that uh, the role that you're inhabiting can take away training opportunities, it's a, it's a bit of a hard thing to rectify sometimes to be very ambitious to advance when potentially the gap that you're advancing into is perceived as taking something away from another profession.
0: Yeah, I can see that point. But what you've got to ask yourself is who is in the right position to impact a uh, healthcare system which is struggling? with medical manpower is it going to be trying to recruit more doctors who don't seem to want to work in the um, healthcare system um, to the degree that they used to because recruitment is constantly becoming more and more difficult and it's it's like to, to quote my manager Gary Swan what's the alternative and when you ask that of anybody who has a problem with the way it's going forward often they don't have an answer. So you're right, I am ambitious, but I'm, I believe I'm ambitious not for my own end, but for the purpose of the profession as a whole. I do see a great future for nurses and nurses with ambition and nurses with drive, nurses with intelligence and nurses with um, a career pathway in front of them. Those are the people I'm really ambitious for and I want to help them move forward and develop the roles as I think they should be developed and if we have to tread on a few professional toes, stroke egos, well, then so be it.
1: Brilliant, brilliant answer. <laughs> I'm un- unashamedly uh, diverting into a bit heavier territory than a, than um, intended, but um, uh, yeah, it's something that it's certainly not reflective of my my perception or opinions. Obviously, um, yeah, it's it's something you don't want to feel like you have to apologise for your ambition. And to I do, think.
0: I, uh, I, Excellent. I job. think as well, Jesse, we have to balance it because uh, I don't want to be unfair to our medical colleagues because there are many, 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 many. And I would say the vast majority of, of the medical colleagues I work with are extremely supportive of the way that we're moving forward and the way that we work. And they can see that we're getting the right training and that we are there to supplement the service, not to take over. You know, I, I want to quote many of the doctors that I've met on on Twitter, for example. You know, I, I talk about Min Le Kong. I talk about Chris Nixon and Oli Flower, um, Shagan as well, who I've met recently. All of whom are wonderful, wonderful people, and they they don't see the problems they welcome us with open arms they see that our opinions are important they're willing to take part in the conversation and that's one of the reasons why i do love social media and twitter especially so much because it does involve people like that who don't see the barriers they see them as hurdles rather than barriers and hurdles that as a team we can jump across and enhance the service rather than necessarily cause more problems Hi Jonathan, it's Menla Kong with the Pre-Hospital Retrieval Medicine Podcast sending a big Christmas greeting from the farm down under and uh, thanks for having me on the show in the Critical Care Podcast where we talked about cricoid pressure. Since then, uh, the Difficult Airway Society of the UK uh, has had their annual meeting where they've continued to support cricoid pressure so uh, that's a great Christmas message which I'd leave you with. So have a Happy New Year Jonathan and we'll talk to you later.
1: Oh, that's fantastic, and that gives a, a nice kind of avenue into one other thing that I wanted to talk about, and I guess it's it's in two years on Twitter, as you were saying, roughly two years on Twitter, could you have ever imagined uh, that you'd be in a situation where you were having a Google Hangout talking to one of the leading, or the leading investigator on a massive international paper, multi center trial in sepsis, and a panel of people that quite, um, I quite openly idolise, that must have been a pretty, surely that's a highlight of the last 12 months.
0: I tell you what, Jesse, I spent about three weeks being scared of that particular process to be honest with you, because I thought, what am I I doing on this panel of people? But once again, I was made to feel very welcome. I was part of the questioning process. I was given open and honest answers. And no, two years ago, if you'd said to me, that's what I would have been doing, I, I would have been very surprised. In a way, being part of that process is what's opening my eyes to the possibilities. Working as part of the team, I am now in the emergency department. You know, we're talking about... uh, People keep talking about how we can enhance our profile nationally. Well, SOD nationally, it's internationally now. That's the way we should be moving forward. You know, we hear of places like the Alfred. Well, I want people to start hearing of places like the heart of England now. And I want that to become an international thing and the way that we move forward. And yes... Twitter, social media, being embraced by people like that is just fantastic. And hopefully that will just move forward. And that's why I always ensure that when somebody tweets me, be it a student nurse, a doctor, whoever, I don't care who they are. If they ask me a genuine question, I'll always try and provide a genuine answer because I want to be part of the conversation rather than just somebody who's seen as a distant person creating their own website and not necessarily interacting with others.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I suppose just to backtrack a little bit there, um, for the listeners as well, what, what I was referring to was, um, a Google Hangout that, um, was conducted a few weeks ago, discussing the results of the Arise trial with, um, one of the principal authors, Anthony Delaney, um, Ollie Flower, as you'd alluded to, Shagan Olsanya, um, I hope I didn't butcher his name too much there, uh, James Day, Min Le Kong and Simon Carley, so some very very clever people there, and um, it's it, uh, it's certainly something that I I'll never forget. Um, one of the comments that Rob Rogers made at um, Smack Gold in in one of his presentations was, I sur- I make myself smarter by surrounding myself with uh, with people that are far smarter than myself. And I think that's what—that's um, certainly something I endeavor to do, and it's one, one of the biggest benefits of social media.
0: We're all part of a team. We're all part of ever developing team, and we are surrounded by brilliant people. Um, and with those people working alongside me, I, I, to go back to the question you asked me earlier, where are we going in the future? I have no idea where it's going to go in the future. I know where I want it to go and i know how i want it to get there and i know that what i can do with my website with my podcasts and all the other stuff i do um i can just help support others in 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 getting to this uh, to this goal and to this bright new future hopefully
1: and i'm sure those doors will keep opening both professionally and um virtually in the in the twitter sphere. so it's
0: been I an so. absolute
1: pleasure to finally meet you
0: Yeah, you too, Jesse. It's been lovely to talk, my friend, and we should do this more often, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Keep educating yourself. If anybody offers you a course, bite their hands off and just make sure you're always in a position to take advantage of any opportunities that come along. Because if you are, if you keep yourself updated, keep yourself networking, then those opportunities do come. Well I hope you enjoyed that and I hope you're going to have a wonderful Christmas and a wonderful 2015. I've certainly had a marvellous 2014. The party's started here so it's time to open some presents and drink some wine and eat some food. Have a lovely Christmas and a happy new year and I'll see you soon. Bye bye.